everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast with your hosts, April and Mike. We have a great show for you today. We are interviewing a woman by the name of Teal Swan, who is a Hay House author, amongst many other things. But she has a very interesting story where she managed to escape from a cult at the age of 19, where she was ritualistically tortured for 13 years. And she goes on to really describe what her journey was, what her experience was in recovery from that and her transformation. And she's now travels all over the world as a spiritual luminary, using her abilities to remind people of the united energetic nature of this universe and teaching them how to find bliss and profound self-love in even the most difficult challenges. So we would um, like to welcome Teal to our show today. But before we get to our show, we'd like to let everybody know that we are celebrating the launch of our podcast and we have a special contest where we would like to give away three $20 iTunes gift cards. We are hoping to get some more reviews of our Path 11 podcast because we've gotten some great feedback and emails from people, but we would love it if you would just take the time and a few minutes to head on over to iTunes, subscribe to our podcast. Obviously, we are hoping that you're listening and you can actually write a review of what you think about the podcast. Take a screenshot of your review and email it to us at info at thepathseries.com. And if you can include your mailing address, that will um, bring you into the drawing of our contest. We're looking to pick three lucky winners on May 11th. So uh, feel free to send us those pictures. Yeah, that's uh, it's only a week away. So, um, yeah, we probably need them by Sunday, Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, Sunday night. And or, then we'll- uh or even uh, you know the morning of May eleventh, and maybe we cut it, make a cutoff time of like two two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, and we'll put out uh, a post on Twitter or and Facebook uh, who the winners are at that point. Yeah, so we'd love to hear from you guys and get some reviews to um, help our podcast. Yeah, we just want to learn who our audience is and kind of figure out how we can make the show to what you want to listen to yeah and these reviews will definitely help us do that we would like to welcome today's guest teal swan teal very nice to meet you nice to meet you too so we actually came to know you through hay house we had contacted them just looking for some authors that they thought would be a good fit for our podcast show. And you came highly recommended. (laughs) So um, we have had the chance to take a look at your website, your YouTube channel, and read a little bit about you through the Hay House website. But we would really like to allow you to introduce yourself and kind of let our fans and our audience know who is Teal Swan. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, who is Teal Swan? Teal Swan is basically a spiritual teacher, but I'm a I'm pretty well known around the world as being one of the most raw spiritual teachers because I want to make spirituality as practical as is possible. I feel like a lot of universal truths are not practical in our day-to-day lives, especially in the modern world that we're living in. So my goal is to blend the lives that we're living in our daily life in this modern world with these higher spiritual truths that we've been knowing for thousands of years. Also, of course, when need be, I like to uproot the old beliefs that no longer serve and that were never true to begin with, and not only demolish them, but replace them completely. So, uh, you could call me a new thought leader as well, I think. I really like pushing the boundaries of where where the human 
species is headed and where society is headed. And my ultimate goals are positive world change. Big surprise, right, for a self-help author. But (laughs) I want to see criminal justice reform. I want to see food industry reform. I want to see the medical industry reform. And I plan to do that for the rest of my life. Excellent. Now, I know that your story comes from you know, being much younger and my understanding and reading more about you is that you had, um, you survived 13 years of physical, mental, and sexual abuse when, before the age of 18. And Mm -hmm. so could you talk a little bit about that experience and how that, you know, molded you and where it brought you today? (laughs) Well, when I was younger, I was targeted as a result of exhibiting extrasensory abilities. Basically what that means is I was able to see things that quote unquote shouldn't be seen, hear things that quote unquote shouldn't be heard, things like that. So with a child who was born with a lot of spiritual gifts in some areas of the world that will be accepted and celebrated in other areas of the world, that's going to be seen as a serious threat. It just so happened that my parents ended up moving to this very rural town in Utah where the dominant religion was Mormonism. And in Mormonism, they believe that the only people that can have those spiritual gifts are in fact men, because those gifts of priesthood are passed from God directly to Joseph Smith, which is their prophet, directly to men. Women can't hold the priesthood, so if women exhibit those abilities, it's a gift of the devil. So I was put on the radar very early of the community, and the mainstream Mormon community turned their back on me Totally. They wouldn't let me inside their houses, kicked me out of their carpools, wouldn't let me play with their children, sent letters to my parents about how I was a bad influence and a sign of the second coming. And that would have been painful enough if it wasn't for the fact that there's also a local cult. So I don't know if anybody knows much about the Mormon church, but there's a lot of splinter groups that come off of it. One of them is the FLDS, which is the Warren Jeffs. We've heard a lot about the FLDS in mainstream news, but another one of these offshoots is called the Blood Covenant, and they believe in the concept of blood atonement, which is that there are some sins which can only be paid for by the blood of man. And they believe it's their direct job to rid the earth of evil. So when a member of the community who already knew my mother, and of course my parents didn't know he was part of this cult, when he started to see these abilities, uh, he decided to induct me into the cult and then I was ritually tortured for the period of 13 years, which was an absolute torment. And <laughs> I'll spare you all the gruesome details, but ritual torture is definitely one of the most serious forms of abuse that you can go through. And I lost my family because of it, and I lost my connection because of it. And I tried to commit suicide multiple times as a teen. And um, basically, I experienced a a complete disconnection, not only from this life, but from other people and from myself, ultimately. I got out of that like most victims of abuse do, with immense amounts of self-blame and self-hatred. And so when I escaped at 19 years old, I basically was faced with the task of putting myself back together again, which I did incrementally. And instead of turning my back completely on the abilities that got me into trouble in the first place, I decided to own them completely. And so I stepped into this position of a spiritual teacher, basically teaching these truths that I came into this life with, and also what I learned through the abuse that I endured. And now I am on the world stage. (laughs) Wow, very courageous of you. Um, Now, what were some of these abilities as a child that 
you were sharing that people of the church were seeing and noticing and interpreting to be, can we say evil? Were they, would that be a good term that they would uh, look at that as? Yeah, well, the one that was upsetting them the most is that I'm a clairvoyant as well as a clairaudient, and that means that I'm looking at other dimensional realities. Now, there are these things called thought forms. Many people call them ghosts or angels or... I mean, there's a lot of words that we have used around the globe for these beings, but I am able to see them because the dimensions are overlapping to me. My senses are not just limited to the third dimension. So when you're a five-year-old child talking to your teacher about what their dead father is wanting to say to them, it puts you on the radar very quickly as a very big oddball. And I was also highly sensitive. If you're an extrasensory, it's very difficult for your nervous system to process sensory information the same way as others. And so let's say that my mother would take a cotton ball out of a out of a box. I could hear the sound of the cotton ball, to the, and it was awful, like nails on a chalkboard. So I had a lot of sensitivities, and um, I would not be able my, – my, my auditory fa- faculty, I think, is the most sensitive that I have. And so if I – was in a movie theater, say, I would say to my mother, I can hear what everybody's thinking. I have to get out of here. And so she'd have to take me out, not knowing, of course, what was wrong with me. My parents are not spiritual, by the way. Well, they are now, but they weren't. They were super scientific. So when I was doing these kinds of things as a child, they were just like, what the hell is going on with this kid? (laughs) I feel sort of sorry for that. But yeah, it's that kind of stuff. It's your typical spiritual gifts. Okay. And, you know, during the um, time where you were going through some of that ritual torture, mm-hmm. did your parents eventually find out or was it when you finally you know, broke away or what, was it kept hidden that well um, by that man? Well, this is always the most difficult question because I'm in this position where I don't want to throw my parents under the bus completely, but they messed up in a hell of a lot of ways with me as a child. And one of uh, my family is not an, a particularly functional family to begin with because of the interpersonal dynamics going on between my mother and father. So basically, these people aren't, even if I had all these abilities, if I had a healthy family, it would be very difficult for them to target me. The fact that my parents did not relate to me at all when I was growing up, most especially my mother, made for a big opening and a gap of not belonging, which is what this man who was a sociopath ultimately capitalized on to be able to sneak in between and set himself up in the family as my mentor. So my parents were essentially trusting him with me and I would come home injured quite often, but he would walk in and explain that I'd had a horse accident or something else had happened. And in my mind, if your kid's getting hurt that often, why wouldn't there be red flags? And there were red flags all over the place, but that was always explained away. Mm-hmm. So, so like, for example, when, when mom takes me to the gynecologist, they say I'm not a virgin. She goes, oh, it must just be that she's riding a lot of horses. So there's always, it's always like an excuse that made them miss what was really going on. Right. Now, um, outside of, you know, doing Path 11 productions, I'm also a licensed mental health counselor and I have my own private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, this is actually one of the fields that I do specialize in is trauma and abuse. Um, can you just lend to some insight on how you were able to go through your own recovery and what were some of the things that, you know, you did to kind of rebound, to find that resilience, to, you know, heal the many wounds? Because 
as you said, this type of trauma is probably some of the most severe and not all people can bounce back and be as resilient as yourself and become this author and this speaker and traveling all over the world and telling your story um, to kind of help others and, and the universe. So would you like to talk a little bit about what your healing journey was? Yeah, in the beginning, what I did was throw myself into sports, ironically. I wanted to feel what it felt like to be in my body because one of the things that was really messing me up when I got away is that I've, I go into these freeze states, these dissociative states, where if you can't run away from pain and you also can't fight back, you basically freeze. And you go into a dissociative state so you don't have to experience the pain of what was going on. But when I got away, it was literally bad enough that if I had put my hand on a hot stove, instead of feel the burn and then take my hand off, I would have just dissociated and burned the hell out of myself. So I decided that it was a really good idea for me to get in touch with my body. And really the only skill I had from growing up was skiing. So I threw myself into skiing because of my ability to dissociate from pain. I excelled very quickly because I can push myself farther than most. And I ended up making the U.S. ski team for telemark racing. And I was going to escape through that venue. But then you find that the only way to start winning races is if you're conquering your inner demons. Because at a certain level of competition, everybody's ultimately physically the same. All of them are amazing. What What differentiates the person in first place from fourth and fifth place is that they have a, a kind of mastery over their own mind. So I was forced to face all of these issues that were preventing me from showing up and winning these races. And um, also, I was not really easy to be with in relationships because I didn't understand what a healthy relationship was. I had a lot of manipulative behaviors. I had no idea that it wasn't okay to just have sex with anybody who was nice to you. Um, so a lot of those type of normalized behaviors I didn't have because of what went on. And I ended up being in a relationship with this man who ended up giving me an ultimatum, which was basically you have to go get therapy because what you went through as a child is literally not normal. Like you need to realize how not normal it is. Of course, in my mind, I'm going, yeah, okay, it's not normal. But instead, I'm like, why is it not normal? But um, right. he ended up actually throwing me into a rape crisis center, quite literally. And um, from there, I ended up telling the, the rape crisis center people why I thought he had drugged me to this place. And when I told them my story, the look on their faces, it was like the director of this the center was there and she went ash white. And she's like, this is way over our heads. But I know somebody who deals with solely child ritual trauma. Isn't that sad that it's a specialty in Utah? Um mm. And I was referred to her, and that's what really began what I think is the real meat of the healing, which is this process of re-experiencing. So I would have to go back into the trauma and then be consciously choosing to relive the trauma and then alter the experiences so I felt like I had some sort of control over them. And also admitting things like, oh, this man may not have been your real father like he said he was. This man may not have been doing all these horrendous things to you because he loves you. And it was those things that were the most difficult to admit. <sighs> so after reliving all of that stuff and learning some basic skills of how to self-soothe and meet my own needs, it got to the point where I was looking around the room at all of these these women because they eventually put me in a group of 
of ritually traumatized women. And some of these people have been in, in group for 20 years. So to begin with, it felt amazing to be around fellow uh, victims. But after a while, I was watching their lives and hearing these stories about how at you know, 40, 50, they're still unable to cope with ritual holidays and they're still getting into trouble with dissociative states and, and almost killing their family while they're driving their car. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is not going to work for me. I can't, I can't do this because in the mental health field, when it comes to ritual trauma, the mentality is there are just some things that you're not going to come back from. And there are some things you can go through where you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. And I'm not going to buy that because I don't want that to be the truth for my future. So I had no other option really because nobody had any answers for me than to go into the other dimensional reality. So to use my gifts again, essentially, to get some of these answers about, you know, I, am I really doomed to suffer? Is life about suffering? Why is it that I've gone through these things? I started asking those questions and getting the answers, I guess. So a lot of it was trial and error. That's, you know, this new book that I've written is, has a, a huge bit about that where I just started experimenting with things that I did know. So I know that I can influence um, water or substances that I'm eating based on the intention that I'm putting into them. So if I'm putting a positive intention into them and then eating them or drinking them, then that's going to be changing the frequency within my body. So after doing some experimenting with that, I started learning incrementally what it meant to, to uh, love myself. And self-love is really what has brought me out of the torment of the abuse and done the most healing, I would say. Wonderful. And I'm so glad that you, you just talked about that too. You know, even though I'm in the mental health field and, and a therapist, I do take a different approach in my practice. And I love to hear you say that you really weren't willing to accept that this is what the rest of your life could be, you know, that you really kind of took that approach of outside the box to know that there could be fuller healing. Um, in, in that instance too, and kind of going into your abilities We've heard a lot of people talk about the Akashic records and kind of looking, you know, in there. Was there any part of you that explored a piece of that with your life in, you know, what this meant for you to kind of move on in your life and to heal and to not allow it to keep you stuck? Oh, yes. Um, immense amounts of it. The, I have unlimited access to the Akashic Records, but the Akashic Records is not a place. That's what people need to understand. It's a word that we use that represents the truth that every thought that has ever been thought exists. So within this universe, if you have the ability to tune your frequency, kind of like you would a radio channel, you can receive whatever channel ever existed. So I did a hell of a lot of work doing that where I was going out of body and also channeling information through me to see what is the blessing of this? Why would I have chosen to go through that? You know, and then looking at that, did I choose this or is this just something that I came into and had no option about and someone else did to me. So after knowing and seeing that we opt into life kind of like a deck of cards, I was forced with that question. Why would I have opted into this deck of cards? Now that very question opens up your mind to the idea that there might be some benefit in what you went through, which mm -hmm. shifted almost everything for me. I started looking at my past in terms of what, am, what can I do today that would not have been possible without that. And the interesting part is 
I didn't have that answer for years. I mean, years and years I was asking the question, never had the answer. And then I just followed what felt good. And I ended up in this business where my greatest passion was helping people with what I know about universal truth, helping people with what I can see, because I'm also a medical intuitive. That's part of the um, extrasensory stuff that I came in with, helping them to overcome their illnesses and ailments and struggles as a result of the stuff I had access to that they didn't necessarily have access to yet. And this career, this huge career that I have now evolved out of it. And it wasn't until probably my second year doing this where I was able to realize that if it wasn't for going through all of those steps and all of that abuse, I would not have been able to touch suffering in a way where I could be with people suffering like I can today. Mm. I, there is no possibility for the person that I am today without the things that I went through then. And so I was able to adopt it instead of feel like something had been done that was wrong to me for my whole life. So that was when the perspective shifted and when the meaning shifted and when it started to feel okay instead of feel like I, I was just this victim that really got the underhand of life is when I started to see this is exactly what was necessary for this thing that I am loving today. Potentially, I will touch more joy than the average person will ever touch in a lifetime because of the amount of suffering that I've touched in my life. I know what it really is. What if I know what happiness is because I know what it isn't? What if I know what self-love is because I know what self-hate is? It changed everything. Right. <laughs> and you speak of these universal truths that this is what kind of like to speak to people about. Can you go into more of an explanation about that? Well, universal truths are these base truths that exist as the primary foundation of almost every religion around the world. Now, not everybody agrees on universal truths, so, um, so we should just get that out of the way. But a universal truth would be like, um, let's say, there is no right or wrong. So there's a subjective truth, which is that it is wrong to uh, put your kids in a situation where they are compromised, right? That's the subjective truth. Objective truth is there is no right or wrong. Potentially putting your kid in that particular circumstance makes it so that later in life they are able to um, reach a level of self-awareness that they never would have reached before. So it's, the, it's basically the awareness that if you hold a perspective that what we're calling source or God holds, if you're able to see from that perspective instead of your individual human perspective – a lot of the truths about the universe and about the world that you live in are completely different. Now, of course, it's very difficult to apply universal truth to a subjective truth reality where we have to fit into a society because they are so incongruent at times. Another universal truth would be uh, source is love, right? That's the basis of almost every religion. You'll find that one too. Gosh, I can't like, I'm thinking of them right off the top of my head is pretty hard. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I can sit down and like write a huge list of them, but uh, God, what's another one? Universal truth. You can't get life wrong. That's another one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that a good one? I noticed you got a really large amount of YouTube videos. Yep. Where did you get the idea to do, you know, work with YouTube and, and put a lot of them out there? How'd that come about? Well, there's this really, really big YouTube channel called Spirit Science. And they got really big because the founder of Spirit Science, this guy Jordan, was an animator. And he found that 
this spiritual stuff was helping him so much that he wanted to deliver it to his teens and 20s demographic, people almost his own age, who weren't going to be able to sit down in front of a guru who was going to talk slowly for three hours about spirituality. So what he did is he he made spiritual concepts, animated the videos so that it would be like a cartoon talking to you about spiritual truths so that and very quickly so that it would capture your attention and this particular series went absolutely viral like people just went nuts over it and this guy who who founded spirit science to begin with was looking around for people who he thought had the highest quality information out there like the the gurus of our time basically and when I when he tripped across my information, he invited me to be part of the spirit science crew and to do a series for spirit science. And so I hatched this idea of this Ask Teal series where people could write in and ask questions and I could answer them. And even though I ended up breaking off from spirit science and just doing my own thing, I kept that particular series. That's how it started. Okay. And I noticed the one, I actually watched one video before we got on the phone here, was doing shadow work. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> title. And, but you have a different take on, you know, what normally we'd perceive as, you know, shadow work being, you know, evil or negative in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? I thought that was very interesting, the way you brought well, that up. It's ironic that you're asking me that question, because it, if you look at, at the teachers that are talking and teaching around the world right now, what I have become the most famous for is, in fact, shadow work. So shadow work, what it is, is work with the subconscious mind. So as you're growing up in your socialized environment, you're experiencing approval and disapproval. Now, in order to fit in and to be fed and to be accepted into your social group, you have to exhibit the acceptable behaviors and try to disown and deny and reject the unacceptable behaviors. And so what will happen is you will try to sort of cut that off from your being. It will become a subconscious aspect of yourself. So let's say that you're an angry kid because of something you're going through, but anger is not okay. That's going to get you disapproval. You will try to cut that aspect of yourself out of your life. You will try to disown it. You'll try to suppress it. You'll try to deny it until your subconscious mind is the one that has owned the anger. And so even though other people might be able to feel the anger through you, you will not have access to the fact that you're an angry person because you haven't re-owned that aspect of your experience yet. So consciousness has been compared to a light. It's something that you can see clearly. Whereas what is unconscious is obscured, which is why people like Freud and people like uh, Jung would call that the shadow. So shadow work is any kind of of emotional work or mental work that is dealing with the subconscious, what you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> but it's like shadow work is very, very critical because what you find is even if you are focusing positively, because, you know, in the spiritual field, there's a whole lot of groups that are all about positive focus and positive focus works. I mean, a huge majority of how I got myself, even out of the trauma I went through, was positive focus. But what you find is that no matter how much positive focus you have, because you have a subconscious aspect to your mind, you might be able to think one positive thought whilst 10 negative thoughts are rattling off that you have no awareness of. And so really the only way to, to play this life in a way that makes you a complete success is to focus in a positive way as much as you can, but then you'll find that you get caught on these, what I call snags. It's almost like no matter how positively focused I am, I'm still 
continue to attract these relationships with people who are unavailable. That's an indication that there's something in the subconscious mind that needs to be looked at. So what we need to do is to use that experience, the triggers from the past, which is really what these negative experiences in adulthood are, we need to use these triggers to go back in time and to see where it is that you're caught, what type of ideas you came up with or beliefs you came up with as a result of those experiences. And then we need to unroot them and replace them and give the personality something else to experience. So a person, say, who had experienced extreme loneliness needs to have their first interaction with intimacy. But the but the loneliness must be acknowledged first. It can't stay buried. Otherwise, you're fighting to find intimacy whilst fighting against your um, issue with loneliness. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> now, are these? Is this something that you do? You know, more on this global level of uh, teaching and doing conferences, or do you also do individual one-on-one sessions with people? The majority of my clients that I have kept as one-on-one clients are terminally ill, and I only see them one day a week. But the majority of what I do in my work and this work that I'm describing specifically is on the world scale level. I find it much easier, in fact, because when you're in a room full of many, many people and somebody is willing to step up on stage and make themselves essentially Teal's guinea pig, (laughs) um, the whole group is able to watch in a much safer way sometimes. So it can be very threatening when you've got me alone in a room and I'm basically helping you root out your shadows and doing a very intense personal work. Some people are not ready for that. So what I find is the safety of them sitting in the chair and watching me do it through another person enables them to apply it to themselves and then start to take those steps in their own life. And it just like, it just snowballs. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so magic. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Um, I wanted to also go into the direction what you were speaking about earlier when we first got on the show is about belief systems. You know, our films, we talk a lot about that. A lot of the um, consciousness explorers and experts that we interviewed, most of them eventually come back to how beliefs are traps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the old belief systems and, you know, what we were maybe taught when we were younger and how we use those to keep them safe, um, to make us feel maybe a little more secure in the world, to feel like we kind of had the answers, that a lot of this consciousness exploration really starts to begin when people begin to let go of some of their beliefs. So I'd kind of like to hear what your take is on these belief systems and also tying into, um, you know, the religious aspect of it as well. The religious aspect? Yeah. Like how, how religion sometimes in the belief of certain religions, you know, how can religions maybe like Mormonism also become a trap. <laughs> I love how delicate you're being. So politically correct. Um, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so not. That's why I get myself in some nice trouble. But yeah, but I, I'm not going to say anything different than anybody else is going to say. Beliefs are the foundation and the building blocks of the life that you're living. And so if you have a belief that's painful, your life is going to be painful. If you have a belief that feels good, your life is going to feel good. And so it's not as easy, though, which is what we got to get, of just snapping your fingers 
and the belief has changed. And it's not just as easy as easy as saying affirmations or thinking a different thought. You, there really needs to be some conscious effort to sit down and really challenge those particular beliefs. Because by the time that something has become a belief, you have so much proof going into why it's true that unless you shoot holes in the beliefs, in the, in the proof, I should say, unless you shoot holes in the proof, then your logical mind is constantly going to be arguing with the more conscious aspect of your mind. And that... That kind of war going on within the psyche really, really damages people. So, yeah, on a religious level, it's just like the proof is in the pudding. There are religious truths that help people feel immensely good in their life. That's why when somebody's going through, say, immense amounts of grief, the belief that there is an afterlife that people are happy there is going to serve someone immensely. But the belief that if you do anything wrong, you're going straight to hell can make it so that people's lives are just a mess of trying to do what's right and what's good. So religions, more so than I would say probably anything, even cultural beliefs have the potential to really create damage or really create good within a, a personality structure, which is why I am really excited for the spiritual progression which is happening in the world today, which is this progression towards people creating their own religions for just one. So it's almost like uh, that's what I'm trying to orient people towards is this idea that you can explore every single religion, every single person's perspective and take the aspects that serve you and make your own cocktail of truth out of that, of the beliefs that serve you the best. And then you can move forward with your wife, your life. Instead of, say, um, getting into a religion and buying into every belief that has been created thousands of years ago, when there was there's no cultural application today for what they were talking about back then. But you have to be in a space where you're willing to trust yourself and step outside the box, in order to get to that kind of a space. You know, if you don't trust yourself, then you're just going to look for the person who you can trust instead of looking for what information or what beliefs serve you the best. Right. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about the book that you do have coming out, Shadows Before Dawn? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, so in the beginning of my journey, when I figured out that I was a, a hardcore self-hater, and by hardcore self-hater, what I mean is I was violating my own boundaries 24 hours a day. I was never doing what was good for me. I was a, a addicted to cutting. Um. So when it comes to the scale of self-hate, I was really, really right there on the bottom. And I started getting interested because obviously you go into therapy or you start looking at any kind of self-help material and the answer is always the same. You got to love yourself, love yourself, <laughs> love yourself, right? And I'm sort of sitting there at 19 going, <laughs> I hear you, but what the hell does that mean for me on a practical level? I don't know how to do that. Just saying I love myself makes me more aware of how I don't love myself. So what I wanted to do, which is what this book is about, is to make a, a practical book of steps about how to love yourself. Not just that you should love yourself. And information spliced in between. So the book is, is basically separated into um, two main sections. The first section is my life story. It was actually Hay House's decision to put that aspect in there to introduce me to the demographic of people who will be reading the book and also to, to prime the base for why you should be listening to me talk about self-love. So in the first part, you get introduced to my life story and also how I found self-love and what my life looks like today. The second part is a toolkit. 
And in this toolkit, I'm basically offering a whole bunch of different ways and practical steps that you can take that will make you love yourself, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so I, I intended it to be used like a tool, a toolkit. So you can either read it from front to back or else you can just look at the toolkit for which tool you want to use today and then practically apply it to your life. Now, how would you, let's just say there's that, that woman on the other side of your book saying, okay, here we are, another self-help book telling me how mm -hmm. to love myself. What's different about yours compared to maybe others that are out there? And, and, you know, what's your, your belief in the work that you've put into this book that you know that if somebody goes through these steps and reads it and works it, that they will come out on the other end loving themselves? Well, it's not hypothesis. <laughs> I wrote this book specifically because this is the stuff that I had to use on myself to get me to the place that I'm at today. I wouldn't put anything in this book I hadn't tried 100%. I mean, a lot of things I did try definitely didn't make the book because they did more harm than good. And I'll even, I even say it in there. There's a lot of chapters where I'm like, you know this thing that you've been told that you can do to love yourself? Yeah, it's going to have the opposite effect. So... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, what makes it different is the fact that I feel like what's lacking is that a lot of self-help books, they're just completely chocked full of information about why you should love yourself. They keep appealing to this idea about why it's a good idea, but they're not actually giving you the practices to apply. Now, the difference between someone that ends up loving themselves and someone that doesn't is that the person who loves themselves has made a real practice of doing it in their day-to-day -day life. Here's an example of what I mean. One of the first exercises that I have people do is commit to 365 days of living according to one question. The question is, what would someone who loves themselves do? So I'm actually making people, of course, they, they can choose to do it or not, but if people choose to do it, I'm making them live their life according to that question. So this is how it goes. Let's say that you have a job you don't like. You ask the question, what would someone who loves themselves do? Maybe one day the answer is keep the job. Maybe the next day the answer is get rid of the job. It's basically forcing you to live your life according to self-love. So it's those practical steps that this book is full of that I have been unable to find another book that has this kind of practical application. You, you see how in like spiritual practice, um, there's a real tendency to know a lot. So it's like I can talk to you all day long about about spirituality, but unless you are actually meditating every day, or unless you're actually doing these things in your life, your life doesn't actually change. So, exactly. right, it's not possible agree. to read this book and not do that. Right, <laughs> which was my goal. <laughs> Great, wonderful. I'm looking forward to to reading it. I have a woman's wellness series that I'm actually doing beginning in May, and I'm going to take a look at your book and see what else I can apply to it because that's a little bit about what we're all talking about. You know, it's women and them just trying to connect more with their physical bodies, loving themselves, because I see that so much, you know, within my clients, <laughs> I work primarily with women, you know, and there really seems to be, um, this sense of lack of love for self. Oh yeah. You're going to like this then. Mm -hmm. Tool number 12 in my book is loving your body. <laughs> All right. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Now, I wanted to bring up your other book, uh, The Sculptor in the Sky. Mm -hmm. That's the one that set my career off. Okay. Yeah, you want to talk about how you got that book started? Yes. 
I was seeing individual clients. My son was really, really young at this point, and I didn't really have plans to do anything except for be a stay-at-home mom. Isn't that funny? Um, I was driving down the road, and I was stopped at a stoplight, and I was looking to the right. I saw this man who was digging through a trash can for food. And I thought to myself first, we are all finding our abundance, regardless of whether we find it out of a trash can or whether we find it from a multi-million dollar company. But I want to find a way, basically, to get the information that I know about abundance, especially to that person. But I can't do that with somebody who can't afford my fee, you know. So I really wanted to reach a larger audience, especially people who couldn't afford sessions. And I think the good part about this age that we're in, this age of information, is that there's so many ways for us to get information out and ways to get it out for free that I started writing articles first and posting them online, knowing, of course, that people who are homeless could like wander into a, a library. All right. So I know that homeless people sometimes go into libraries to use computers. So my thought about this guy was if I'm writing these articles about abundance and about how to create it and about how you're never stuck where you are. Maybe he'll walk into a library and just maybe he'll put something into the search bar about that. And maybe my article will come up. And it like was really inspiring that I could touch somebody that way. And I wanted to organize all of my thoughts about the universe, why you're here. It's the big questions. That's really what Sculpture in the Sky is about. The Sculpture in the Sky is a book about answering all of the big questions in life. What are we doing here? What's the purpose of life? What is my role in the purpose of life? How does happiness play into the purpose of life? And then, of course, how to achieve it. So I ended up wanting to just organize all of those thoughts in, in one giant text. And obviously, the most, the most no-brainer is a book for that particular format. So I just sat down and started writing it. Self-published the thing because I had no patience to try to find a publisher and... And it went like totally well. People were reading it and loving it and commenting amazingly on Amazon and wanting interviews. And it was like in a period of three months, I go from having individual sessions and living this really quiet life to, can you please come speak in Texas? Can you please come speak in Europe? And so I did. <laughs> That's great. Just kind of rewinding a little bit with some of the universal truths again. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the things that you said reminds me of the teachings of Abraham. Are you familiar with the channeling of Abraham oh. through Esther and Jerry Hicks? Yeah, I am now. Yeah, people said that to me in the beginning of my career. They're like, have you heard of Abraham? And I'm like, no, I haven't. But yeah, since then, I totally love them. They're great. Yeah. and We have very um, differing opinions on shadow work, though. <laughs> do you? <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, yeah, it, it just, there always seems to be somewhere a connection to the laws of attraction. Yes. Well, it is the universal truth. That is the governing law of the universe that we are living in, this particular universe. There are other universes that operate according to completely different laws that the human mind, of course, could not comprehend because we have no um, nothing to relate it to. It's kind of like if you raise a kitten, right, before a certain age, in an environment where there is no vertical structures, the cat will have no ability to see vertical structures. So us comprehending other law-based realities is going to be just that difficult. But there is always going to be talk in the spiritual field about the law of attraction. Before that, it was called karma because of the fact that it is the governing law of this particular universe. Whatever you focus on, you get more of. And it's a genius mirroring construct for learning. Now, do you work with any other universal laws, like 
outside of just earth? And do you use any connection with that in, in the work that you yes, do? Yes, I do. I do. Yes. I spend more time out of body than I ever did in. And it's a bit of an escape for me to go to other dimensional realities. And it's a bit of an escape to go to other worlds and other universes. But I do that quite often. <laughs> And, and what would you say, I mean, the importance of that, obviously, is to be able to tap into other information and, you know, have experiences in those other, you know, reality frames. And what do you find is really important to bring back here from those experiences? I think the most important aspect to bring back is the perspective about just how much of a blip this life is. We're simultaneously so incredibly important, but also we make too much of this life. Because the way that, that this universe or this life that you're living is seen from outside this dimension is eas most easily comparable to you playing a video game, only you have become the avatar. You come down here, by virtue of experiencing your life experience, you decide what it is that you want here, and then you add to the expansion of source by virtue of those preferences. And so your life that you're living, this is why you can't get it wrong, is always adding to the expansion of the universe. But when you walk out of this life, it will be no different than you getting killed as an avatar in a video game. Why do you not freak out when things go wrong in a video game? Because you know that there is a life that is bigger than that life. And that is the most important aspect that I would say is available to us when we get outside of this dimension. But I also must say that a lot of people get frustrated with me a bit because I have access to all of these kinds of information, you know, the really great sci-fi stuff. <laughs> but I really, it's not my interest because what I find is, is that even knowing about alien species, even knowing about all these other dimensional realities what interests me the most is how do you live life here on Earth? And those are actually the most difficult questions to answer. So I can tell you about all the dimensions. I can tell you about how to get to these and get out of body. I can tell you about extraterrestrial species. But what is that going to do for you in terms of helping you to, say, get over the grief of losing your parent? To me, what makes people the least happy is those aspects of life. And so those are the aspects of life that have the opportunity for the most growth and for the most expansion not only personally, but universally. So I tend to focus, you'll notice, on human suffering, which most people who do have access to other dimensional realities will focus on how to alleviate human suffering. <laughs> I'm really deviating far from the path, aren't I? <laughs> no, this is the path we like. <laughs> and you also, early on we, when we talked about uh, thought forms, mm -hmm. um, one of the people we interviewed is William Buhlman. He was actually the first guest on our podcast and he way back we talked to him about thought forms and he, he kind of describes them as kind of like blobs of mist mm. and the closer they are to forming an actual manifestation th they get solid more solid as they go so if yes. it's something that like it's like oh i should you know buy a new car or something but it's just a a thought you know you a real quick thought you kind of the car is kind of like a mist off in the distance but as it you think about it more and you get the paperwork together and you talk to the bank it be, actually starts becoming a solid object do i have thought forms the same way you do or is this is he thinking of something else 
No, yes, it's completely accurate. But here's what the piece that it will interest you that was missing from that particular story. Everything that you perceive is interpreted through your mind. And so let's say that you are able to perceive thought forms which don't exist on a physical dimensional plane. Your brain will have no way of interpreting that experience. And so it will interpret it through the ways that it understands substance and matter. So let's, I'll give you this example and let's see if you can apply that to what you just said. Okay. When you go out of body into the Akashic records... You, all you are doing is tuning your frequency to a similar like frequency and thus receiving the channel. The same way you would sit in your car, you would tune your dial to 98.7 FM and you would receive that channel. There is no travel ever outside this dimension. Okay. No travel whatsoever. Travel is a third dimensional construct. But upon coming back into your physical body, your brain will interpret the distance between the frequency where you were at and the frequency you tuned to to get to that thing you wanted to experience as travel. So you will have the experience of floating very quickly through a wormhole, even though that is just an interpretation your mind is giving you according to what it understands. And this is the most difficult part about bringing uh, interdimensional information into the physical dimension, is that everything you experience out there is going to be filtered through the perspective of the brain. And so you're going to lose a hell of a lot of the truth of the experience as a result of it. And so the brain understands things as being more or less manifested as being more or less solid. So you will experience it that way, even if it is not necessarily the case in the ultimate truth. Okay. <laughs> that, that actually, yeah, that makes quite a bit of sense. All right. And... I want to also clarify, too, that William does a lot better job explaining the thought forms than oh, I. Oh, I, I know. He's <laughs> but, great. Oh, so you know him. You know who uh, he is? Of course, yeah. Oh, okay. That one. Yeah, I do. All right. And also, I wonder... Well, he he does a lot of out-of-body work. And the thing yeah. about the thing about that is that when those of us who go out of body become very familiar with each other. And I, what's interesting about going out of body is that if people are, are not very good... He's become very proficient. But if people are not very good at tuning their frequency to the very thing they want to go to, what you'll notice is that there's a, a trail that they leave behind in their travels. So in the fourth dimension, you can follow it. It's like imagine that there's a lightning bug and that lightning bug makes a movement. There's a bit of a light trail behind them. So okay. when you become familiar with people's signatures, you can follow their their light trail and you can see where they're going. So Many of us have followed each other, <laughs> and I've followed him a few times. Awesome. Kind of switching gears a little bit. I, I I didn't want to forget to bring this up, but on your website, you talked about the uh, frequency billboard campaign. I yeah. just want to talk real quick about what that is. That sounded really interesting. Okay, so if you're able to see pre-manifested reality like I am, then what you're seeing is the vibrational reality of the world that you live in. So let's say that, that joy, before it becomes chemicals in your brain, joy is a frequency that has movement and pattern, and that is the real essence of that particular experience, right? Okay. So if I'm able to see that and I can capture it, then... What I have is essentially a homeopathic painting. 
Okay. <laughs> so, so I've created this series of frequency paintings, knowing that if people have them in their in their living space, if they focus on them, then it will cause an entrainment. That's the law of attraction. We can use that to our advantage. Meaning that if you are in the room with the vibration of joy, you have an option. Either you match the frequency of joy, you decrease the frequency of joy so it's no longer joy, or else you leave the room. You can't be a match to it. But when you paint these very strong vibrations, the likelihood, and I'm even going to say it's going to happen, it's not even a likelihood, is that that's going to be the dominant vibration, so the person will have to shift. So by having joy in your living space, you will be forced, in order to stay a match to your own house, to increase your frequency to a state of joy. And so I got... I got doing this for clients. And so like, let's say somebody was struggling with intimacy. I'd paint them the vibration of intimacy so they could be around that and attract more of it into their life through this entrainment idea. But then I, I, like, it just dawned on me one day where I was like, oh my gosh, I could, I could do this on a global scale. And so what I did is I designed this campaign where we would pick an area and I really like targeting cities where there's a lot of poverty and a lot of issues, you know, your rundown types of areas of town. And we would pick a billboard and put one of these frequencies up so that when people are walking by their or whole neighborhoods are forcing themselves to entrain with that particular frequency and thus shift. Okay. <laughs> and it's taken off. It's like a really big thing now. Yeah, I'm just looking through the paintings and they're very... Very interesting. Very cool. Kind of like a stained glass style in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it. Wow. Yeah, they're they're pretty impressive. Um, Thank you. Now that I find that very interesting too, how you're kind of bringing into you know, especially like a billboard, for instance, where somebody who's going to see it is probably on their way to a job, and you know, seven out of ten times they probably don't like that job, so that <laughs> you might. You know, it you know it might be a drop in the bucket, but if you see that drop, you know, every day for how many weeks, you know, you, you could probably really make some change there in that person's, yep. uh, <laughs> yeah, in their uh, uh, awakening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm like I'm like secretly hoping, even though street art is technically illegal, I'm secretly hoping that like some street artist will see them and be like, "Oh my gosh, genius idea! I'm totally taking this on and like posting them places." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. And um, <laughs> you you take a lot of uh, you, you're very big on social media, somewhat from what I can tell, and you you take questions on YouTube. Have you been asked anything really? out there that you've never been asked before that kind of made your draw drop a little bit, but I don't know, not something super shocking, but enough where you're like, well, this is, it's about time. So that was asked too. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense at all? (laughs) Not that I can remember right off the top of my head. I have uh, this absolutely insatiable love of questions. So Okay. I'm like the kind of person who never gets sick answering the same questions, and I also love new questions. And so I think that my love of questions would probably prevent me from knowing the answer to that. Because whenever anybody asks a question, my reaction is usually, oh, it's genius. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> okay, because I was kind of thinking, you've, I've noticed at least you know, doing research for other things too, that there's kind of like a time pattern. It's like, say... oh. 
I've got it. I've got okay. it. All right, go ahead. Okay, there's like every so every so often I get this question. And this one always blows my mind. Of all the questions you could ask me, people will get online, like let's say I'm doing an interview like this and I'm taking questions, and they'll say this, I lost my keys. Can you please help me find them? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always got to stop and I'm like, wait a minute, this is either the best question or the worst question. Why? Because if you had anything that you could ask me, why would you ask me that question? But if that's the thing that you're asking me, then your life must be going good, so maybe we're going somewhere. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've noticed that, uh, at least in at least my research, that there's been like a time pattern, like say 10 years ago, you know, uh, a certain topic was the hot topic of the year. And then as time progresses, you know, yep. a couple of years later, it's a new topic and it kind of evolves as time goes on. I didn't know if you noticed that. So, yes. like, I do, okay. because, the, because what we have to understand is there's different levels of consciousness. So if I go out of body and I'm in the fourth dimension and I'm observing the physical earth, because you can do that, you can observe earth itself from the fourth dimension, what you'll notice is that there's like, there, every person is an individual consciousness, but then you could treat the entire Asian race as a collective consciousness. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Or you could treat the entire, let's say just up a country, you could, you could treat America as a collective consciousness. So the question is, which... Which collective consciousness are you going to look at as, an, as a singularity? So if you're looking at the world, there is also a singularity in the collective consciousness of Earth and, so, and of people, because you could look at collective consciousness of cats if you want to. But if we look at the collective consciousness of people on Earth at a specific time, you will notice that there is a collective asking. And what's interesting is that the majority of teachers who are born and who are talking are coming in from out of body in response to the collective asking. That's what their lives are designed according to. That's the choices they make. It's the things they select to teach about. So you're very accurate in your perception that there are these um, collective askings that you're watching. And you would call them a theme of focus, a theme of attention. All right, that that does make sense. Well, well, I mean, apply, you can apply the the larger group to your own individual life. In your own life, you also go through themes. So maybe this year your major focus is how to have a good relationship. Maybe next year your major focus is success. So the collective okay. consciousness of the human race goes through those same phases. <laughs> okay. I have a, another question too. Um, which is, again, kind of going off topic, but I heard you earlier mention about being a medical intuitive. Mm -hmm. And it, it really wasn't until I started, uh, you know, working with Mike and we were interviewing, you know, these explorers of consciousness and learning more about healing and, and energy. And, you know, at the time I've, I've been a Reiki master now for almost 10 years and have done energy work, you know, in my practice, but it really wasn't until I was sitting across from these people interviewing them where I had a much better understanding about this whole other world, about how I could go out of body and how, you know, I can look into somebody else's body with their, you know, their permission and get an idea of maybe what is happening on you know, in the body and on their physical level. And one of the people that had a pretty good influence on me was one of our experts, Tom Campbell. Um, you know, he's able to do that as well. And I remember sitting across from him and he just made it sound so easy. Like, well, you just go there 
And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? Well, that's it. I mean, there's no trick to that. You can just literally go there. And, you know, so I would say since 2008, I've been practicing that a lot more. I've been having great success with my clients and friends and families that live in different states. And, um, and I just find the, I wouldn't consider myself to be a medical intuitive, but it's pretty mind blowing when you really can assist somebody and help them in the physical body to elicit healing. And I know that you had said that your individual clients that you're working with are terminally ill. Is there also some work that you're doing on that medical level of helping people transition? Oh, yeah. Wait, transition you mean into death? Or wherever they, they're going. Yeah, transitioning oh, yeah. out of the physical body. Okay, that is so, I do so much of that, so much of that out of body, it's unbelievable. And whenever, when you, you'll notice this quite quickly, when you develop the ability, and you're also a, a healer type personality, when you develop the ability to get out of body, the universe will not squander those particular talents. And so quite often when you go to sleep, you'll be pulled out of body to, let's say, an accident scene where somebody's wandering around outside of their body, not knowing what's going on. You either transition them or help them back into the body. It's a huge majority of what I'm actually doing. So yeah, I help people transition all the time. One of my goals, in fact, is to start end-of-life care centers because our the way that we medically treat uh, terminal illness and death in general is absolutely abysmal. We need to stop disapproving of death, see it as a natural transition, and make it an easy transition for people, not a difficult transition for people and a scary thing. So I spend a huge amount of my time on the transition into death. Yes. It's a major passion. Can you tell? Can you hear it in my voice? Oh, man. <laughs> I've also found in my personal experience that, um, you know, kind of in these other dimensions that there are other beings that come to help and assist mm -hmm. in these healings. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. And I just recently, I was telling Mike about it, had a, a very new experience of during a healing. Now I had this client that was cleansing. So her body felt to be just vibrationally pretty high and pretty pure. You know, there wasn't a lot of toxins running within the body. And for the first time, I kind of had these other beings that came into our session that I had never met before or had seen before and realized that I was tapping into something very new and something different. And they presented to me, it was really cool, uh, a grid over this woman's body. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then for the rest of the day, I had maybe four or five sessions and I, I kept utilizing that. I was like, okay, well, this is new. I have no idea what I am seeing, what's going on here. I saw them working within it. I was using my energy, just using intuition, you know, taking myself out of the logical mind to say, what the heck's happening and what, what am I doing here? But um, that was kind of freaky. And But I've also realized that it's taken some of my healing to a different level in sessions. And mm -hmm. so I just figured while I have somebody on the line that maybe might have seen something similar like this, are there really these energy grids uh, over people's bodies? Because they seemed very ge geometric in shape. Um, or <laughs> okay. am I yeah, crazy? <laughs> no, I'll explain, the, I'll explain exactly what you saw. Um, okay. Okay, so the human race right now is in a, a level of primitivity that is very difficult for us to grasp because we, of course, are looking at our technological advancements and everything and thinking, wow, we've done so good. But how did you feel about the 17th century when people were bleeding people? See? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, in the universe, most species, and th this is extraterrestrial species, interdimensional species that aren't extraterrestrial, what they use to heal is what they call a light grid. 
And so you know how I just described to you about what the frequency paintings that I'm painting are doing. It's mm-hmm. a, it's basically offering a vibration and then it's causing the person to come into alignment with the vibration offered. So what you saw that particular day is what they call an alignment grid. It's where they offer what the blueprint of the body should look like so that the body is then given the opportunity to say, oh, I remember and then come back into alignment. That's why it looks so, so geometric. It was basically a reminder to the body of how it needs to organize itself, a reminder to the cells of what alignment should look and feel like. Mm. That's what you yeah. were seeing. <clears throat> yeah, it was really interesting because I was I was able to see in the grid where I, the best way to describe it was where their their energy was short circuiting. Yep. And watching these beings kind of help and replace almost like a new light bulb, you know, putting in a new light bulb. This one's got to shorten it. Let me take this out. Let me put this one in. The colors did change um, from what I was able to see and yep. it kind of went back the colors that I saw where the energy was healthy was more of like a very light tran transcendent blue. <laughs> um, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. So most of the species within the universe have those healing modalities and they specialize in specific ones. So you'll notice that the, the Pleiadian race has what they call light work models and the Arcturian race has what they call blue ray healing models. And so there are all these different grids you can use with people. You'll start seeing really bizarre ones. There's really cool ones. They also have, like, that's the version of punishment outside this dimension, by the way. It's like, let's say that somebody is really out of alignment. You can put a grid on them that they call the awakening grid. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it's like the most harsh, harsh, oh my gosh, you're going to see everything type of um, experience ever. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited you're seeing all these things. Have you run into the mantis beings yet? No, I don't think so. Oh, oh you will soon. That's the uh, praying mantis? Yeah, the, uh, okay. we call those the docs. Like most of us who do interdimensional healing, they're like doctors. The mantis beings are absolutely the best healers that you will run into anywhere. They're amazing. And they are constantly coming to people in ayahuasca journeys and things like that if they need healing or need work done, on, especially on their physical or emotional body. Can you describe the, uh, the beings to heal? Because this is the first time you experience these beings, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You mean like what they look like? Yeah, maybe she can have some more yeah, insight. Yeah, tell me, tell me. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, as you say, these mantis beings, I don't know. I mean, I've I've had, maybe I have, and I've, I've had very like doctor-like people sometimes show up at my bedside or during um, healing sessions. But these, yeah, these beings were different. They were kind of different in color. I remember they had- like, Were they blue? Very, there was almost like a gray blue. Yep. Um, <laughs> it, it, it felt very much like, I guess, like a typical of what you would see of an alien. Like their yeah. fingers were very, very long. Their arms yep. were very long. All I could see was Taller kind of short. like from, um, they were much taller than me. They were Lyrans. You were interacting <laughs> with Lyran beings. Lyran that beings? Is- yeah, that's very, they're 11th dimensional. So Lyra exists as an 11th dimensional frequency. And so they're the ones that are most often mistaken for angels, in fact. But you were probably seeing them much more clearly. When they try to come into the third dimension, they appear like pure light a lot of times or just like blue light. But when you go into the fourth dimensional construct, which I'm pretty sure you are overlapping with, you can see them more in their true form. But they're called blue lyrans. I'm super sleep. That's such good news. That means you're at a frequency where your healing is like way off the charts. They, they don't come to just anybody. 
No, awesome. Nice. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time in healing energy, you know, so I would say probably over the past five years or so with my practice. Yeah, weird things are starting to happen. New things are starting to happen. So that's kind of cool. Um, it, the other interesting thing about that experience, too, was um, I could really feel when I came around the client, you know, she was on the massage table and I walked into the area where they were working. I felt like I walked into such a force field and I had kind of put my hands on her stomach, but then I realized they were still working and they were kind of like, April, get out of here, go, go down to her feet. You know, it was kind of funny, but it was almost like this, this child that didn't really know kind of what was happening. So I'm going to come and I'm going to come sit over here. And, you know, the adults were kind of like, no, 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 your place is over there. (laughs) And when I had stood at my client's feet, the vision of this grid also changed. It was almost like I was able to see it from a different perspective than when I was at her head. So it was, um, yeah, well, cool. I'm glad that I'm going to look into a little bit more of this stuff to understand who's, who's coming to help. That's awesome. (laughs) Good. <laughs> now you you have the book Shadows Before Dawn just coming yes. out in May. Yes. And how can uh people get a hold of the book? Well, it's going to be on my website. Okay. Which is www.tealswan.com. Pretty easy to remember my name. Um the other way is off of Amazon. I think it's going to be in Barnes and Noble. I don't actually know. Nobody told me. Let's just be honest. I don't know. It'll be easy to find. Those of us who have a computer could just type in the name, and it'll be there. <laughs> okay, and we'll put it, links to everything in the show notes, so you know people listening to this can just click on it and go and purchase. And you also you know, have. You know what's funny? I do like seven to eight interviews minimum a week, and I'm still sounding like an absolute amateur because every time people ask me like how to do these things, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you how to get out of body. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we're st- still kind of learning too. Uh, this is our fifth or sixth show now, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's just trying to make sure that you know people can find you when they need to. I know. And I wish I could answer the question completely, but so you you're on Facebook, is that true? Oh yeah. Okay. Hell yeah, I'm on Facebook. Yeah, and not only I've created this group on Facebook also that's called Teal Tribe because part of the other thing I'm way into is creating intentional community. And I had this idea of myself at 15 years old in the middle of the night suffering and having absolutely no one around to help and thought, what would it be like if I could just get on the internet and be connected to a group of like-minded people who could say discuss my issues with me or share common interests? And so I created this this group called Teal Tribe, which is on Facebook. You can find it and ask to join. It's the most amazing thing ever. It's like this great community of like-minded people. They all help each other with the processes that I've created as well because you can really use some support for some of those things. And then, of course, posting your odd, really funny video that will apply to most people that are into spirituality. So that's a fun little thing to jump into also. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely look for that. And you're on Twitter. Is that true? Yep. And Instagram. I just really got an Instagram account. I'm so proud of myself. I've finally joined the century. <laughs> oh, you should put your uh, some of your paintings up there on Instagram. Oh, I probably will. <laughs> and definitely YouTube. I know you're all over YouTube. Oh, um, yes. And a, will be. I'm inundating it. <laughs> yeah, YouTube's amazing like that. And I guess my last question, unless there's anything else you want to add before? No. <laughs> okay. I'm good. As you know, we've you know asked... Uh, William Buman, Tom Campbell, and others, you know, they're how they get out of body. What is Teal's way of getting out of body? First, 
I guess that's probably the way to ask for somebody who isn't very proficient at getting out of body. Well, yes, it's always more difficult asking somebody who finds it more difficult to be in the physical dimension and focus here. But I have learned, I actually have a video on YouTube about how to get out of body. I find that the very best thing to do is to get yourself into the vibrational stage. What you'll notice if you're setting the intention, intention really carries more weight than most people will ever imagine. If you're setting the intention of getting out of body and you lay down and you practice just being in the space behind your thoughts. So what that means is if a thought comes up like judgment, you know, you label it judgment or fearful thought. So you're almost observing your thoughts. That means that the place that your consciousness is in is the space where you are behind the thoughts or between the thoughts. If you spend a little bit of time there, what you'll start to notice again, holding that intention of getting out of body, is that a portion of your body will start to buzz or vibrate or feel like it's going numb or staticky. And what you got to do is capitalize on that because it's essentially a window. And you got to intentionally spread that feeling all the way through your body. So it's almost like to go through that doorway, you've got to be able to drop into that, um, that feeling of numbness, like you're going through it and letting yourself be consumed by it. And then Often what will happen is that a person will start to get really intense auditory sensations. So it'll sound like you're in a jet engine or else, you know, just vibrating intense humming. And that usually scares people back into body, but you got to surrender to that too. It's almost like giving up on the fear of death. You just got to be willing to die. And quite quickly, you'll notice that you'll start to feel like you're floating inside your body, kind of. And once you get to that phase, it means that there's this a separation that's occurred between the body and the consciousness. And then you can say, my favorite technique is to roll to the side instead of float up towards the ceiling. Cause sometimes you can get stuck there. You roll to the side and then with your intention, cause you'll be in the fourth dimension at that point, you can look back at your body if you want to, but that usually scares people back in with your intention. You just decide where you want to go. What we have to understand outside of this body, outside of the body is that outside of this dimension, thought equals you're there. There's no lag time. There's no buffer time. So if you think outside of this dimension elephants, you will be at elephants. If you think um, another planet, you'll be at the other planet. If you think go into the living room, then you will. your consciousness will go into the living room. From there, it's just a matter of exploring. It's like when you get out of body, even though there are people like myself who could potentially help you with that process – you will learn of your own accord just by virtue of going through those experiences where you set forth the intention and you go have the experience and you notice the things that you notice out of body. And it's, it just snowballs. It's not like you need a mentor for your out of body experiences. You okay. might actually get, you may actually be assigned one. Ironically, that might be fun. I, I know a lot of people when they start getting out of body, they'll, they'll interact with one of their primary spirit guides and that'll be the one that shows them how to do things and says, look, think about, Clarity, and then they think about clarity, and everything becomes more clear. Stuff like that. Okay. But that was, that's my technique. My technique is capitalize on the vibrational stage. <laughs> yeah, I I'm able to get there, but there's a lot of times where I don't have control. And have I you asked for control? Yeah, I I, I do. Uh, Williams, uh, that phrase, you know, uh, you know. Which one? Well, he was it. I'm not familiar with his with his um, techniques at all. He he does. It's almost like a, a mantra where he goes, you know, clarity now. Oh yeah. Um, I, I think happens? I've tried like control now or clear, and I I kind of it kind of takes me out of it. <laughs> See, so <laughs> what I what I would do with you 
Because that when you just spoke those words, what it felt like to me is that you have a habit in life, in, in your waking life of feeling out of control. And so you've got enough shadow, essentially, should we say, going into that particular concept that when you say control, you have no concept of what that feeling state is like. And so you are not actually offering the vibration that law of attraction can respond to. So okay. I, what I would work with you on is in your waking life, just like here as you are, working on you f being able to have an experience of what control feels like. And once you have that vibration, you will be able to do it outside the dimension. Okay. It's sort of like, it's like if, if somebody hasn't ever had an interaction with intimacy or hasn't ever had somebody be present with them, how can they create that vibration and thus have law of attraction respond to it? Outside this dimension, you're still ruled by law of attraction. So that's the the one impediment you're going to run into out of this body. <laughs> if you can't yeah. offer the vibration, you're never going to get there. Yeah, that makes sense. And I notice too, when I am in the vibration or I, I'm, a lot of times I'm just like hovering over the bed kind of a little, a little yeah. bit. I can't see anything, but I know that there's somebody like right there next to the bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, one time I could hear them walk into the room um, walk around the bed, but yet you just get this presence that there's just somebody there just watching or whatever. And so you think that's probably a guide? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that answers that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been so fun talking to you, Teal. I'm so glad we found you and uh, had the opportunity to spend so much time with you today. We really thank you for this interview. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. This yeah. is a really fun interview. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. We'd love to have you back, you know, later on in okay. the year if anything else is going on and you'd like to give us a Something's call. Something's always going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe if that campaign, that billboard campaign takes off some more, maybe we could talk oh, about that. I know what we could talk about if you wanted to do another interview one day. I've just, I've actually already written a third book and started this uh, certification series because I've actually designed a process to heal complex trauma. Mm, it yeah. is this process specifically for post-traumatic stress, and it's actually already being used in the UK with with veterans that are returning from war, and the National Health Service just endorsed it. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, wow. oh, yeah, we definitely have to talk because uh, a few years ago, four or five years ago, I opened up a nonprofit to treat combat veterans with awesome. uh, yeah, Reiki and acupuncture. I was working with another girl, so I have some... I don't know, just a little soft spot in my heart for some veterans there and post-traumatic stress. So, yeah, well, we'll definitely have you back on. I can see that, like me, you're a major underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little. Just a little. <laughs> okay, thank you, yeah. guys. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Teal Swan. And if you'd like more information about the work that we do in our films, you can head on over to thepathseries.com. Be sure to search for us and find us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also find our films on Vimeo, iTunes, and Amazon. And Gaim TV also. That's right. Also, please uh, rate and review the show on Stitcher and iTunes. And currently, right now, we're just offering a contest for iTunes kind of mentioned that in the beginning of the show and uh, get more information uh, in the show notes of this show and yeah that's about it all right well thanks so much mm -hmm.